seated. Well, I'm going to come out and admit it. I'm going to come out and, and come clean to you this morning. I have started watching Masterpiece Theater's Downton Abbey, and I'm hooked. <laughs> I'm hooked. Um, I'm learning a lot about Elizabethan England and uh, that period in, in uh, England's history. And uh, among other things, I'm, I'm learning the complexities of what's involved and all the etiquette that was involved in how you did and didn't address certain people. And uh, to keep that straight, I, I had to, to Google it and looked it up, and my gracious, the hits that you can find on this kind of thing. Um, just in case you ever wanted to know um, how to address the Earl of Grantham, I can tell you. So, you know, take, take it easy. Just take a breath. Here we go. Uh, Robert can be addressed as Lord Grantham. Servants address him as my Lord and refer to him as his Lordship. His surname, Crawley, is not ordinarily used, nor is Lord ever paired with Robert. Peers use their title as if it were a surname. He would sign his letters, Grantham, uh, to his friends and family, that is, or Robert Grantham. Close family and friends might refer to him that way. His wife, of course, refers to him as Robert, referring to him as Lord Grantham. To others, his uh, children, his daughters, refer to him as Papa, but Lord Grantham. To others, anyway, it goes on and on. And that's just one character. There's like page upon page on this one blog that I found as to the specificities of the proper etiquette of each individual character based on the hierarchy within the family and the structures and, and all of that. And it's not just, if you've seen the show, it's, it's not just um, you know, how you would greet someone uh, or refer to someone or whatever. It's also just you know, when they come into a room. And, and, and depending on who it is and depending on who you are, there will be a certain rising of some parties and an extension or withholding of a hand by others. And, and there are certain episodes where there are certain boorish characters who just don't know, who just don't get it, and who, you know, because they've come from somewhere and they don't have the, the, the breeding, the stock, if you will, to, to know enough. And they stand out like the proverbial sore thumbs as to how to respond to these, these people and to, to one another. And, well, anyway, I've gotten to thinking about all and the question came to my mind the other day, just as I was ruminating on, on this uh, in the show, how, do we know how to respond to God in the right way? Do we know how to engage with Him in the proper way? Now, please don't hear me. I'm not now going down a path of we need to be engaging with God in a formal sense. That's not where I'm going. That's not where I intend to take this, this at all. But do we know how to respond to Him? Do we know how to engage with Him? And I think our struggle here has nothing to do with ill-breeding or ill manners. It has to do with an ill heart. That's our problem. If you have your Bible now, turn with me to 1 Kings 18. Uh, we are getting back into our little series here, reflecting on the uh, lives and the ministries of 
Elijah and Elisha, and right now we're still in Elijah, so we are in 1 Kings 18. And if you're trying to find that in your Bible, as you've heard me say over the course of this series, the, the two book of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, are sandwiched between two other 1st and 2nds. 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, between them you find the book of Kings, the two. Uh, so the books of Samuel, the book of Kings, books of Kings, and the books of Chronicles. They're in your Old Testament. We're in 1 Kings 18. I'm going to read verses 1 through 19. 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 1 through 19. Hear now God's word. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And he said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, Go tell your Lord, Behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you I know not where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord and how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts live, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's pray together. Lord, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. 
They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Oh, may our souls say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will hope in Him. Even when, even when it seems the sky is dark, even when it seems that the road is long, even when it seems the odds are great and the enemies too strong, may it be enough for us to say, the Lord is my portion. I will hope in Him. We ask that you would speak to us now through your word, by your spirit. Help us get a, a feeling sense as to what was going on there uh, in this, these interactions between uh, Obadiah and Elijah and Elijah and Ahab. And remove us from that understanding of the, the events to an application to our day, to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What enables our faithfulness to God? What enables, what empowers, what frees our faithfulness to God? Is it not His faithfulness to us? Is it not His faithfulness to us? Think with me here, just for a moment, the, the, the concept of, of footing. Of, of sure footing, of being able to, to, to plant your foot and pivot and move and know that what's beneath you is not going to give way. And, and the necessity of that. I, some of you may know that you know, because of the injury I had to my knee months ago and the rehab and everything, I've had to take up running again. And most of that running is done on asphalt. Um, now that's a whole kind of diff, different kind of surface than my memories of years gone by and vacations gone by of trying to run on sand on beach, the feel of it and the strain on the muscles is completely different because, you know, when you're running down the road, it's solid, it's firm, it's not going to give. In sand, it, it moves, it shifts. Our limbs were not designed, not built to run in that because you can't, you can't plant, you can't turn, and so it's so much more exhausting, it's so much more of a strain, and it's something like that, I think, when it comes to our understanding of God, how God's faithfulness is the firm foundation upon which we can stand and move out of, knowing that He'll hold and knowing that He won't give way. Now, why is that important to consider? Because He calls us to, now to mix, play with the metaphor a little bit, He calls us to follow Him. He calls us to walk with Him. And sometimes that entails doing hard things. Sometimes that means He will stretch us and take us outside of our comfort zone. Sometimes it means that He will call us to do things that defy our natural inclinations. Sometimes He will call us down a path or to take certain steps where we can't see, we can't perceive the outcome. We can't control the outcome, and it makes us uncomfortable. How can we do that? When we're called to, to walk along a road like that, how can we do that? Is it just blind trust? Is it just a leap off the cliff into the dark? No. It's relying on who we know He is, how He is 
revealed himself and who he has demonstrated himself to be as the faithful God. And his faithfulness enables and compels us to do the hard things, to be able to go outside the comfort zones, to do the things that defy our inclinations and, and, and all of that, even, even when under great, great pressure. I, I use that, I'm adding that into the mix now, the pressure thing, because of what you see in this text. Because when you look at all, these three key individuals in this passage that we've just read here, Ahab, Obadiah, and Elijah, each one of these men is under great duress Great external pressure. And the question is, how are they going to respond to that? To whom will they look? On, to whom will, they, will they, they trust and on whom will they rely? And as we look at that and we begin to unpack that and look at the examples and the case studies and begin to see what the lessons are, it bears this simple point out that the Lord has proven Himself faithful to us. And His faithfulness if we'll but embrace it, if we'll but take it to heart, enables and compels our own to him and to one another. So we're going to look at these in turn. Ahab, Obadiah, and Elijah. Three very different men, three very different responses. Uh, first, Ahab. Ahab, in what, in what sense is he under pressure? In what sense is he under duress? Well, he's the king of Israel. And his people are suffering a horrendous drought. You don't think as the ruler of a kingdom like that, he's not feeling stress? He's not feeling pressure? How is he going to lead them through this? Uh, the problem is, his response is typified in this way. As knowing nothing of the Lord. Now he knows intellectually. As a Jewish man, raised in Jewish culture, he knows in his head who God is. But when you look at his, the case study and the bio of this man and his track record, in the deep sense of knowing, he knows nothing of who the Lord is and his promises. Now look with me how he responds with disdain. Disdain towards others. for Two ways, disdain towards others, disdain towards God. Disdain towards others. Think with me as to what a king was supposed to be in the ancient Near East. And not just even um, what we find in the Old Testament regarding Israel, but even other kingdoms as well. The, the writings in that time make it very clear. People expected their kings to be shepherds. That was the image. To be shepherd, a shepherd of the nation, which implies things like providing and guiding and protecting. So that's what you should be seeing here, exemplified by the rule and reign of this king over his people, right? But what do you see? His top priority here in the midst of the, this uh, terrible, terrible drought is to go out and find pasture for the animals, for the horses and the mules. That's who his priority, what his priority is set on. Why? What does that represent? That represents the power of his army of the economy, of his power and his glory. That's what Ahab is fixated on. That's what he's most concerned about preserving here. Showing utter disdain for the people. 
And that is stemmed and that is connected to ultimately his disdain towards the Lord. And you see that in this bridge in how he goes along implicitly. Now, it's, it's alluded to in chapter 17. It comes out explicitly in, chapter, in the latter part of chapter 18 and then in chapter 19. He's going along with the flow of his queen, Queen Jezebel, in this horrible persecution of the prophets of the Lord. And Ahab, Ahab is not standing up to this, which, by the way, a little premarital counseling, never marry a woman from Sidonia, but anyway. Um, this, this is, it, it, it again betrays something of his heart, but not just towards other, in a horizontal plane, but on a vertical plane. His disdain not just towards other people, but his disdain towards the Lord. What should have been, again, as a king, again, as the king of God's people, his heart's attitude, his, his literal posture should have been upon his knees, praying to the Lord, repenting towards the Lord, pleading to the Lord to spare his people, to relent from this drought. But instead, what do we see? Oh, we see him persevering, just trying to hold on, to outlast this drought. If he's persevering in anything, he's persevering in his sin. Persevering in his sins of commission by continually, um, this is false worship that he is sponsoring there in the northern kingdom, and the sins of omission and just spurning the commands of God. Look what, what we see here in, in uh, Elijah's words in verses 17 and 18. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler? Of Israel and Elijah, he he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and have followed the Baals. Rather than listening to the message, Ahab attacks the messenger, even as he himself is the troubler of Israel. He can't see that. He won't see that. He refuses to see that. The data does not fit his formula. You see? And so he's going to twist and contort the data in whatever way he has to, to fit his formula. It's something akin to what happens some, in, in even the realm of academia. When uh, experts start a study of some kind, and because of their presuppositions, because of their assumptions, because of their grid, because of their worldview, they come to a certain issue and they say, well, because there's no God, because there's no design, because there's no such thing as a fall, therefore this conclusion has to be. Maybe we should re-examine these assumptions. Or let me, let me bring it down to a personal level, if I may. The danger here, again, of bending data to fit our formulas. The danger of revising our theology to fit our ethics. Now, you, you, might, you may be thinking at this point, well, that still sounds kind of ethereal. That still kind of sounds kind of up here. Revising my theology to fit my ethics. It's not as up here as you think. Because it can go like this ever so subtly, but very dangerously. Please don't tell me. I don't want to think about God as creator because that means I can't think about my things as my things. That means he calls me not as owner, but as steward. 
please don't talk to me. Don't make me think about God as the gracious, forgiving one because that would obligate me to be gracious and forgiving to other people. You see how you begin to your theology it gets warped by your ethics. Or perhaps um, something along these lines. Please don't talk to me. Don't let me think about it. Jesus' lordship over the whole of my life because that means this up till now completely ignored area of my life, I have to submit to him and follow his lead? Or where this really can take you is? Maybe we just need to rethink this whole business about Scripture being inspired by God and inerrant and therefore authoritative because I don't like what it says. Your theology can become warped by your ethics. And we must not go there. We need not go there. For God himself is faithful. He is faithful. We can trust him. We can lean into him. And that then frees and empowers and compels faithfulness. Now that's what we see with Ahab. Let's go on now to look at Obadiah. Now Obadiah here... Uh, is is something of an example as well. Not quite positive, not quite negative, kind of in the middle, um, showing us that contrary to Ahab, he's certainly not responding to the Lord with disdain, but we would have to say he's showing us a, a, a warning, if you will, to not waver. To, to not waver. Um, let me just sum up what we read here in verses 7 through 16 in this uh, dialogue between Obadiah and Ahab. And, and what's going on here? You know, God in His providence allows these two men to meet. Clearly, this is His appointment for these two to have this, this conversation. Um, Ahab has, has sent Obadiah off looking for the pasture land. Obadiah, as he's looking, he bumps into Elijah. Elijah's moving down with the, the uh, southeast away from Zarephath back, into, uh, back towards Samaria, uh, the kingdom of, of Israel. Um, Elijah, in greeting Obadiah, calls him out, challenges him. Obadiah is a bit nervous about what he's saying uh, because King Ahab has been sending out all these messengers, all these, these folks looking for Elijah, clearly showing you something of how Ahab feels about Elijah. It's not that he misses him. It's not that they're pen pals. He wants his head for what's going on here, or at least somehow to, to, to fix this, this, this drought. Well, anyway, Obadiah is scared silly that um, he's going to get this word out, to, he's going he's to carry this message back, and when Ahab either goes himself or sends messengers to this place where Elijah is supposed to be, Elijah will have just gone because the Lord will have taken him away, and now uh, Obadiah will be held responsible, and Obadiah will now be the one whose head is on the proverbial platter. Okay, there's your summary, all right? Now, first off, let me say this, that under pressure, what we see here, how Obadiah is responding is, he, it's, it's not that he knows nothing of God in that deep sense, like I said Ahab was, but it's more he's forgotten. He knows, but he's forgotten. Sounds very much like us, doesn't it? I think of the three I can most identify here with, with, with Obadiah, very much so. And 
So well, first let me just say, well, give the man a well-deserved commendation. We've got to, we really need to acknowledge uh, the, his, his own faithfulness. And uh, sadly, there have been some through the years who have really laid into this guy in some of the things that have been, been written. I mean, to be sure, he was not worldly. He's not cowardly. He's not ungodly. Uh, he is rather a model in many respects of what it looks like, what can be involved in serving and laboring in difficult situations. And think with me what we see here. It, he did not withdraw. He's there as a man who fears the Lord in the court of the king, serving in that capacity. He is a trusted official, a high-ranking official. This sort of position down the road as the centuries unfold in the history of Israel would have become something like what we would call a prime minister to the king. This man has power. And he is he's a trusted advisor of the king, so much so he has served so faithfully, so well through the years, that when the crisis comes, who does Ahab turn to? Who does he ask to, to go with him on this venture and to look for this other, these pasture lands? Obadiah. Obadiah. And in addition to all that, he's risking everything. In, in this venture, as far as you know, the hiding of the, the two groups of 50 prophets in the caves, He's not just risking his career. He's risking his life. Likely he's the only man in position to be able to do what he is doing, to have the power, to have the, the knowledge, but at the same time to have the heart to do this. He's putting himself in great, great risk. But all that said, with all the commendations that I think are very well worth mentioning, there's still some inconsistency here. Something's amiss. Something's gone wrong. Something, some wirings come loose in his heart. Because as, when Elijah comes and says to Obadiah, it's time to go public. It's time for you to stand. It's time to come forth. It's time to declare yourself. Clearly, Obadiah is showing a, a deep, um, almost unbalanced fear of the king. Now, I'm not saying he's irrational. I'm not saying he didn't have any grounds. Ahab, again, is a wicked man. And, and, and as the, in essence, prime minister of the king, who else would have been in better position than, than Obadiah than to see something of the character of this king? But who should Obadiah really be fearing? Which king should he be most concerned about? The king, the king, the Lord of hosts, God himself. Now likely, and I'm going to go into a little bit of suppositions here, okay? but I think these are reasonable uh, suspicions and, and things we can consider. Likely, what's going on? His trust is shaken in the Lord. This man who had such heart and such faith for such a long time, has become, this trust has become shaken. Now how, it, well, likely because this has been going on a long time, the status quo. And, and Obadiah has been serving in an isolated capacity. He doesn't have a community of brothers and sisters in the faith around him in the court of Ahab to encourage him. And I, I think this is a warning to us. That when, when you stand under, in stressful times, under pressure, 
long enough, and I understand there are times where any of us could be called it, but you've got to stay in that context long enough, your faithful fray. And you may well stray. The uh, danger, the danger here of being disconnected in our, from one another that can then in, in, entail and lead to being disconnected from the Lord himself. Some of you may have heard the, the news bulletin just this past week of Ramzi Youssef. A few of any of you may know who Ramzi Youssef is, but he was the mastermind behind the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. And he was sentenced to life without parole plus 240 years. He's pretty well covered. And... And right now, he's in this fortress out in Colorado in solitary confinement. And Ramzi Youssef is now suing the United States government because he is saying that he has suffered a great deal in these years where he has been already under solitary confinement, and he wants the conditions of his imprisonment changed. Now, that's as far as with the description of that case I'm going to go. I know both sides have some very good points. Okay, that's it. What I'm just My point in bringing this up is this. The concept of solitary confinement, of being isolated, of having no one around you, is intended to be a punishment. So why would we, as believers, voluntarily take it on ourselves? When it comes to cutting ourselves off from our brothers and sisters in Christ. When it's intended to cause you harm, you know, and it, when it comes to the, the, the justice system, why would we do the equivalent when it comes to our faith? Especially when you consider the reality, like when we see with Obadiah, the reality, all, any and all of us are going to go through times of great pressure and strain. Will you be prepared? Will you be ready? You might be called upon to lie in order to cover some for somebody. You're feeling the strain. It could be maybe you're called by a superior, someone over you, to cut some corners so that things will go better, whatever that would look like. What are you going to do? Are you ready? And do you have a support network of people around you to encourage you and hold you and embolden you and pray for you? Because if you don't, your faith may pray. And then you may crack under the strain, under the pressure, and you may start to make compromises like we see here with Obadiah. Now, I, this is a warning, I think, to us. And by God's grace, Elijah's brought into his life, and he seems to be spared of going uh, too far down into the pit. But here's the thing. God promises to be with us. His presence with us at all times. Yes, by His Spirit, but also mediated through the agency of His people. We need to lay hold of that. That's one of the means by which His faithfulness is expressed to us and extended to us. Do we know that? Do we appreciate that? Will we seize on that? Lastly, Elijah. Um, Elijah is, of course, feeling the, the, the he's being stretched. He's being pressured. Um, he's holding to and acting from, however, God's faithfulness to him. We see it in his actions. Um, he's been through a lot already, just chapter 17 and 18. I mean, my goodness, he was 
In the very beginning of chapter 17, he's called to make this announcement of this drought to the king, a gutsy move. Then he's sent off to the Transjordan area, the eastern part of the side of the Jordan River, and there he is supplied by generous catering. Well, yeah, sort of, but I mean through ravens. And then after that, he's sent northeast up into the heartland of the worship of Baal, where he uh, lives with this widow and her son, and they are provided for by this never-emptying jug and jar. And then this boy dies, and he observes that. I mean, he goes through all this, and you think, isn't this enough? No. Because what it turns out is all that was preparation for the next stage. And so he goes, and he goes and he returns to Israel, uh, to, the, to the realm and reign of a king that he knows blames him for the drought. And Elijah well understands that the way the world oftentimes responds to trouble is not by turning back to God, but by turning against God and his people. And Elijah knows he's going to be on the receiving end, and it's exactly what happens. Elijah knows he's going to be on the receiving end of a great deal of hostility, but he goes. He goes because he knows who is this faithful one that has called him to go. We see this faithfulness also in his words. And what he says and to whom he says it and how he says it. These words that he speaks to Obadiah. As the Lord, verse 15, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. It reminds me something of the way he responded to the widow in Zarephath. Remember that a few weeks ago? We looked at that. And he doesn't chasten her. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't lay into her. He doesn't insult her for her lack of faith. And the attacks that she's making on him, but just says something short, simple, give me your son, and takes her up, takes him upstairs. It's something like that here. He doesn't lay into Obadiah, buck up, wussy. I don't know what the Hebrew would be for that, but um, but he challenges him, but is gentle at the same time. Just by the way, the same way God will be with him in chapter 19. Then to Ahab. These strong words that he speaks to Ahab and the gauntlet that he throws down there. On the one hand, because of the faithfulness of God, because of who he knows God to be, Elijah is able to, to be gentle where he needs to be gentle and firm and clear and strong where he needs to be firm and clear and strong. Because he knows who God is. Because he's in this relationship with the true and living God. He Put it this way. He knows where he stood. And he knows before whom he stands. He said that to the king in chapter 17, the very first part there. He says it here uh, in verse 15, when he, again, when he speaks these words to Obadiah. And I'm sure it's exactly what's on his mind when he speaks to Ahab. As the Lord of hosts live before whom I stand. I mean, which army, which general, which king is Elijah most aware of? He's got physical eyes. He can see this king. But who is the king that he's most aware of? The Lord of hosts. And that frees him to speak as he speaks. Even against the hostility, even in the face of hostility, even knowing the kind of reactions that he may 
well get. Well, let me come back to this. We started with this image of pressure. And that's where I want to wrap up and end and, and just uh, get us thinking about this as we come to, to a close here. Um, pressure. Pressure reveals much. You know, when this external force is put upon us, it reveals what's, what's inside us. Now, I thought about, and I did even some reading on this, I thought about doing this really cool analogy here at this point on fracking. You may know that's that uh, technique that's used to, to get out natural gas out of certain um, geological uh, rock layers, and you use this compressed, I'm about to tell you about it, compressed uh, water and sand, but I just told you everything I know about it. And so I'm not going there. That would have been really cool if I'd known enough to use that. But instead, I'm going to go with this. A bottle of ketchup. Far less cool, but hopefully as effective. What happens when you put the squeeze on a bottle of ketchup? What comes out? This is not that hard. Ketchup. What happens, what comes out, when you put the squeeze on a sinful man or woman? What comes out? Sin, not ketchup. Sin. Under times of duress, we naturally tend to respond with the disdain as though we didn't know God at all, wavering as though we've forgotten Him, and we need a great deal of help in responding in a faithful way, which tells me you know, the pressure reveals what's down deep within. It, it's, it reveals what's at our core. We need a new core. That's what the pressure reveals. You and I need a new core. We need a new inside because of what the force from the outside is revealing of us. Now, where does that come from? It comes from embracing and entrusting ourselves to the one who is hinted at all through this text. The greater prophet to come. You see, when you keep reading through 1 Kings 18, and we're, Lord willing, we'll get there next week. This prophet Elijah stands up, goes, uh, faces this great hostility single-handedly. And he is vindicated because God saves us by the Lord saving his life. But there was another prophet, the greatest prophet, Jesus, who also stood single-handedly, if you will, against great evil, who was vindicated by the Lord accepting his death. His death for you and I, in our place, in our stead, all in response to promises that were made, promises, ancient promises, promises rooted in God's grace, promises stemming from our deep, deep, profound need that spoke of from the very beginning of our being saved from the penalty of our sin, saved from the power of our sin, and even one day saved from sin's very penalty, uh, excuse me, presence. And all those promises, despite the great cost that it would come, that it would cost, despite all the great costs that would be involved, all of that has come to fruition and fulfillment in Jesus. Point being, he's faithful. 
not just in these in in, in the, the scope of the, the lives of Obadiah and Elijah and you and I, but in the grandest cosmic way, in Jesus. God has proven himself to be completely, utterly, from beginning to end, and wrapped all around it, faithful to us. Which then frees, I will t- it really does, free and must impel and compel our faithfulness to him. Let me pray for us. Lord, we need this new core, all of us, some of us here perhaps embracing this for the first time, Uh, others of us needing just to be made continually new, continually renewed. We pray that you'd help us to to know this deeply, to believe this, to, to trust this these realities of your promises to us and, and the way that you have demon, who you've demonstrated yourself to be, to then entrust ourselves to you, to not to fall into a, a uh, not knowing like Ahab did and, and, or even forgetting as Obadiah did, but rather knowing and remembering and holding to and acting from as we see with Elijah and fulfilled in your Son. And we ask for your grace in this. Help us to uh, be agents of, of being reminders of this with one another. Uh, I thank you for this time. I thank you for 1 Kings 18. In your name we pray. Amen. Let me ask our ushers to come forward. We have a chance now to respond in the giving of tithes.